Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. Today, we're going to talk about scandals and their institutional effects. So I'm going to go ahead and ask our guest to please introduce himself. Hi, uh, my name is Brandon Roddinghouse. Uh, I'm a professor of political science at the University of Houston. Uh, I study executive politics broadly, uh, and in that context, I study executive scandals, and there are many. <laughs> <laughs> there are many. So let, let's get into what got you interested in this kind of topic of conversation and and more uh, along the lines of like the academic view of it. Uh, but yeah, so what got you interested in, in scandals besides the fact that they are so interesting to read about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, an endless amount to study. Um, I got interested, I think, in politics during the Clinton administration. So it dates me a little bit, but that was my um, kind of first uh, understanding of, of politics. And so obviously the Clinton administration was racked with scandal. And so that definitely, you know, kind of colored my view of how these things function in an otherwise kind of ordinary political system. But what got me interested in scandal more specifically in an academic setting was when I was teaching at the University of Idaho and I lived in Spokane, Washington, which is in the far Eastern side of Washington. And uh, the mayor of Spokane um, had been uh, an ardent anti-gay member of the state legislature when he was in the um, Olympia in the state legislature there in Washington. So it turns out that he had a closeted lifestyle. So the local newspaper actually did these series of sting operations that went into these chat rooms where the mayor who was in office was attempting to try to basically recruit and, um, and, and, and uh, you know, have these sort of clandestine dates with um, um, men. And so it became a kind of scandal because of that, obviously, but also because the paper exposed that um, the mayor had tried to effectively kind of use his position as mayor to try to kind of like get those individuals jobs with the city with the sort of you know intention of having that be the connection between the two. So uh, it became a kind of really important important regional scandal. The mayor eventually got recalled and uh, became kind of a sad story um, generally for lots of people concerned, but it got me thinking about the effect of scandal. The people asked him to resign. The city council was very clear they didn't want him to continue, but he decided to stay on. Eventually he got recalled through the kind of normal recall process. But it occurred to me that there's a lot of things that scandals do to politicians when they're in office. And so all the different kind of ramifications for how they act when they're caught in these things do matter to governance. And ultimately that's kind of what we care about. I mean, approval ratings come and go and obviously, um, you know, popularity is sort of fleeting. But one thing that is impactful is that if we put so much time and effort and attention onto a single politician and then that politician is damaged somehow, then it creates a possible like um, problem for governing. So that was got me kind of interested in, in generally speaking, how um, kind of scandals affect politics. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I'm kind of curious to know, you know, how long have presidents been 
public figureheads? You know, were they always such in the public eye, their personal lives, you know, the things they did behind the scenes? When did that really start coming about that they became more of these public figures? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's um, important to, I think, kind of trace this back to the origins of the office. Really, Washington was the first to kind of personify the embodiment of the presidency. The president had his face on coins. He would, you know, on his inaugural ride, you know, like ride this white horse through towns between Virginia and New York at the time. So there was this kind of regalness to the presidency that I think all presidents use to some degree, but didn't become really kind of popularized until probably the 19th, um, 1900s. So Teddy Roosevelt becomes this sort of popularization of the office through like the teddy bear. I'm sure you all know the story. Um, Woodrow Wilson sort of personifies the office by putting his own kind of personal stamp on it and really speaking directly to the people. So it's interesting that the way the imagery of the presidency is constructed is that basically the president is government, that we empower them to do so much through legislation, but then kind of politically we require them to act in certain kinds of ways. And because we put so much onto that personification, that image of the presidency, when it's damaged, like through scandal, it could become a real problem for how those presidents govern and then effectively really have ripple effects in the ways that, uh, that government functions, which is something which, you know, it's obviously problematic. Mm -hmm. And so my question is kind of, I, I don't mean for this to sound insidious, but when I think about government, especially here in America, when it comes to tabloid talk to scandals, the, the phrase, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but you could probably correct me. It's like pawn at circuses, cir circuses. I don't know. It's like that Latin phrase, which means bread and circuses. And so right. I feel like a lot of the, the way that um, political scandals are covered kind of takes away from policies and their actual and the the political person's actual legacy in office. Do you have anything to comment on that or say about that, um, especially the way that we humans in America consume news media? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really um, good observation because there are, I think, problems in how these scandals get covered. Obviously, the root of it is about some kind of flaw, some kind of ethical wrongdoing, some kind of norms breaking that creates this moment. And so it's natural fodder for attention. But obviously, there are grander implications to what it meant. And in some cases, it's broad, some cases it's much more narrow. So we've had, say, for instance, members of the president's cabinet who've been accused of shoplifting, <laughs> which isn't like, a you know, doesn't have dramatic ramifications for how we, you know, allocate resources or how, you know, laws are constructed or reconstructed. But we have had scandals in the nation's past that have really cut to the core of how policies are made. So the Iran-Contra scandal during the Reagan years definitely was part of that. So, you know, there are all these sort of implications that are really meaningful. And so I guess it's not surprising that we find the scandals, you know, peak interest from the media and from the public. Um, what's interesting is that the scholarship shows that people will use these scandals as a way to judge not just that person, the incumbent, but also parties. So that oftentimes when you've got 
these sorts of things happen. You've got parties that are affected by it that weren't necessarily even related, but that are connected to it. We also know that sometimes the issue itself will matter. So for instance, questions about character became really important in the, um, in the um, 20 uh, or 2000 election after uh, Bill Clinton was leaving and Al Gore was you know, running for effectively a, you know, another term for the Democrats. Uh, character was more of a, an important issue. Foreign policy became a bigger issue in the 1988 election and the 2000 or the 1992 elections when George W. H. W. Bush was running because there were scandals connected to Iran Contra and the nation's use of resources to help uh, aid the Contras in um, in South America. So there are all kinds of interesting um, ways that scandals can matter, and I think I guess we can't hold you know the media to a, a too high of a standard because it's important that we all know this and if the way we know it is because we remember details about you know what happened <laughs> in the oval office then maybe so be it for sure and for someone who or might not know what the pure definition of a scandal is can you break down what a, a scandal would be you know the the grandier scale of it and and the lesser scale of it yeah, so the way that I in the book and most scholarship treats scandals is to see it as uh, something that's objective. So in this case, the way I organize it is to say that if there's an event which was potentially something that broke the law or that which was a violation of sp specific kinds of norms, especially like fidelity, then those were scandals. But it's important to recognize things that are not scandals. So for instance, you may recall when Dick Cheney was hunting with a friend and accidentally was shot in his face. <laughs> or the, So the friend obviously recovers happily, no one is injured terribly, but this is not a technical scandal in the literal sense of the way that I organize it. So there's a difference between bad press and a scandal. So it's important to recognize those distinctions because in a world where everything's hyper-partisan and where, you know, opponents are at each other on every issue, we need to be able to determine what is and is not a true scandal. So this hopefully definition creates that divide. Mm -hmm. And so going into um, some of the the effects of a scandal and, and from the view of a politician, what, what would be kind of like the um, the I, I believe I was reading uh, up on your research and you have like a worst case and best case scenario. If you want <laughs> yeah. to explain that a little bit more for, for our listeners. Yeah. So obviously scandals all hit a little differently. It's not, not all going to be debilitating for, for presidents. Um, what we find effectively is that like that some scandals are able to be um, wiggled away from <laughs> and others are not. So scandals that are personal are easier to get out of than financial scandals or political scandals because of the way that they reflect what's happening. So people seem to distinguish between a person's private conduct and their public conduct. So those differences are meaningful. Um, we also find that like when you've got lower level officials who are accused of these crimes, they tend to not survive as effectively as like the president does. So people ask me this question all the time, you know, how did President Trump survive all the scandals that affected his administration? The short answer is that presidents survive, <laughs> period, put that on a bumper sticker because, you know, they're protected in ways that the other institutions are not. So for instance, although President Trump survived all of his scandals, the 
cabinet officials who were involved in, you know, misuse of funds and other kinds of illegal activities didn't survive. So who you are and what you've done will dictate to some degree whether you survive a scandal or not. So those are kind of at least some dimensions of why some scandals are more impactful than others. Mm-hmm, sure. And you mentioned public and, and personal um um, I'm blanking on the word right now, but personal and public, um, the way that you act, conduct, excuse me. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly it's been a long day for me already. Um, but the personal and public conduct do in your research, have you found that Americans tend to not necessarily care so much about the personal conduct of the president as much as what they're doing policy wise and, um, public wise, do you tend to see it kind of, balance itself out in a weird way. Yeah, it does. And it's unusual because we blame so much on the president that's not their fault, like a bad economy or rising gas prices, inflation. There's only so much presidents can do about these things. But in terms of scandals, um, you know, I think it's odd to see then that some scandals don't actually impact the president as much as others. So there is a divide between public and private conduct. In fact, um, now, you know, it's more commonplace to see, you know, moveon.org is like a, you know, kind of progressive engine for policy change. But they started as an organization that wanted to ask Congress to sanction President Clinton and then literally move on, right? So it's a kind of um, interesting dimensionality to the way that scandals might might function. Um, But that changes though. And what's interesting to see is that although my research, you know, tracked the sort of political trends from Watergate to basically a write-up through Barack Obama, the fact that we've had such hyper-polarization and such a, you know, increasing distrust of the media is a recipe for, in some ways, scandals not mattering at all. And so I'm currently framing out a book that looks at this question, whether or not scandals even matter anymore. So politicians themselves don't face the same kind of sanction that they used to. So for instance, you know, Donald Trump's a good example. He survived multiple scandals that would have killed any president before him. You have Matt Gates still in office. Andrew Cuomo was able to effectively stay on for a lot longer than most. You had the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia run for governor <laughs> of Virginia and um, stay in office while, you know, he was involved in a blackface scandal. So there's a lot of these specific scandals that no longer really are impactful the way that they used to. And part of the reason is because polarization has risen so that people are elected from such polarized places. States are polarized, districts are polarized, even the nation's polarized. So scandals don't have the same kind of effect on politicians the way they used to. Mm-hmm. And I do kind of want to add a comment and then we'll get into a little bit more of the examples of, of scandals and how it affected policy. Um, the comment on, on Maybe scandals don't necessarily like have the the same effect that they used to in terms of like the the public's uh, that they that they would for a politician like they would you know when ethics and morality were a little bit more um, uh, campaigned on. But I think it definitely does add to like the mistrust between a person not at all trusting an institution because of the person. And I think even you spoke on that earlier. Um, but I do kind of want to talk about like scandals, conspiracy theories, and something that's kind of going around um, even mainstream media a little bit is is the Epstein case, or excuse me, Epstein, Epstein case, and um, Clinton's involvement, and even uh, uh, Prince Andrew, is, I believe that's the, the royal that's involved in it, and, and how that's kind of like affecting, not affecting, exactly not affecting 
um, the the Clinton's legacy and and freedoms in a sense, and how the public is kind of questioning that as well. Yeah. So I'm yeah, it's interesting actually. Yeah, the misinformation and conspiracy theories and scandal are like kind of two parts of the same apple. So there are a lot of overlap there. Uh, misinformation and conspiracy theories are slightly different. What's, it's interesting because those are the sorts of things that don't pattern to the way that we typically think of public opinion change occurring. So people who are more likely to believe these conspiracy theories um, uh, tend to be, you know, people who are more hyper-partisan um, and they tend to be people who are less trustful of like the system and of the institution. So those are the primary drivers of like why people might believe, say that like, you know, JFK was killed by the government or 9-11 was an inside job. These things that like there's not evidence for, but that it's a kind of persistent rumor. So we've seen that manifest in bad ways, which obviously creates all kinds of issues, um, not just for a kind of localized problem, like say, for instance, the QAnon conspiracy where, you know, some, you know, some person will go and, um, you know, kind of confront people at that pizza parlor in DC, but also misinformation creates the sorts of um, long term kind of erosion of the belief in how successful elections can be. And so this is, I think magnified by the pandemic, frankly, I think we're spending too much time by ourselves. <laughs> I mean, that's why it's good to get out and do stuff. Um, um, but obviously that creates, I think this insular view. And so people kind of aren't checked by normal patterns of human interaction to say, it's probably not the case that there's a child pedophilia run, run ring being maneuvered out of this pizza place in DC run by Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so I think um, that's one thing. And the other is just social media and the internet, right? You can go on all kinds of rabbit holes to find things. And so, um, yeah, there's a definitely a kind, of, a kind of yin and yang to these things together. And they are pernicious, I think equally so. Obviously politicians can be blamed for the kind of scandals that they manufacture mostly of just their own, you know, their own actions. But conspiracy theories are slightly different in terms of how they come about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned social media. And, you know, when I when I first think of, you know, in talking about why people might not be as interested or care as much about these scandals as much as they used to, my first thought goes to, well, I think, you know, we the content that people see on social media every day. I mean, you're exposed to so much every single day. My thought goes to, you know, maybe people have become almost numb to these types of things because it's constantly being circulated. They're constantly seeing it. And it's just something that doesn't almost surprise people anymore in my thought. So my question for you is, you know, should we still, is it still important to be holding, you know, the president of our country to this higher moral and ethical standard? Or is that something that is, should still be important to Americans in making that decision through the voting process? Yeah, on your first point, I think you're exactly right. I mean, we live in our own media ecosystems that we create, right? We cultivate our Twitter feed. You know, we have like your Instagram follows who like are, you know, in a particular mindset. And so we don't see the bigger picture sometimes. And I think that creates problems for people in trying to understand how important things are <laughs> and maybe and how important things are not. Um, and on your second question about the president's position morally in the country. I think that there is a need to have the presidency seen as an institution which is co-equal. I don't 
think we have to have the presidency viewed as being more important or the most important because they share this power. And I think it's, you know, obviously for most people, it's um, feels like the president runs things, but that's not accurate. And so there are all kinds of problems wrapped up in how we assume presidents might kind of be the leaders of the country when in fact they're sharing power. But I do think that the way the president conducts themselves is critical to things like soft power. So in getting congressional negotiations moving forward, we've seen this for the past you know, a couple of months with the Biden administration trying to figure out ways to kind of get the sides to, you know, come to some kind of agreement, but also in terms of foreign policy. I mean, presidents have to be able to negotiate with foreign leaders. They have to appear to be strong or at least in control of things. And so the need to be able to execute those on the national and international stage is really important for presidents. So when they get caught in these scandals, there are implications to how they govern. And the more they hide and kind of withdraw from the ways that they would normally do things, the, the in some cases, the worse it makes it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So let's go a little bit more into like the institutional effects, your research and, and um, two major scandals. Uh, one is Nixon, President Nixon handling Watergate. Um, we know how it affected him. Yeah. afterwards, his public reputation. But how did it affect policy during that time? Yeah, it, Nixon is an interesting case because um, he does end up getting kind of forgiven for his role in Watergate. Um, it's after when he passed away during the Clinton administration, there was lavish, you know, kind of attention paid to his policy choices. In some cases, actually, it's odd, but Nixon was probably the last really liberal president we've had. So he put into place these policies, which were very progressive. And if we did that today, you know, they, people would call them socialists. So he really did push that. And in the foreign uh, arena too was able to really, you know, make some profound negotiated changes to how the country dealt with China and, and with Russia. So this is really interesting because obviously, you know, it all wraps up in his abusive power and Watergate. Nixon was of the sort to be very brooding. Um, he had a kind of uh, kind of negative, <laughs> I think, worldview. So he tended to retreat in Watergate. And if you've seen representations of this in the media or in popular culture, you know, typically it's Nixon kind of with a, you know, half glass of scotch and a bunch of pills and, you know, you know, talking to the picture of JFK in the, in the, in the West Wing. Um, and that's somewhat accurate. I mean, the data do show that Nixon kind of, kind of withdrew from public um, uh, events and really did kind of just stay you know, reserved and railed at his enemies. And as a result, policies didn't move as quickly as they could have. And so he lost some bargaining leverage. Uh, and ultimately then that sort of comes to the point where you see his party abandon him when he really needed them to step up and not impeach him. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to um, uh, President Clinton, his scandal, um, of course, with Monica Lewinsky, I mean, it, the, the way that Monica Lewinsky has been portrayed in media over the years has changed. Um, uh, people are recognizing a little bit more about her vulnerable position um, and, and where she was. And uh, but President, there's been some pushback from President Clinton lately, not from but on President Clinton lately, um, because he I, I don't believe he ever really apologized. I could be wrong, but I don't I don't re remember any uh, public apology to Monica Lewinsky and what it did to her life. Um, mm -hmm. So we can talk a little bit about um, how his scandal affected policy, if it affected it at all, and how he, if he played a different kind of like role that Nixon played in terms of uh, how he handled the situation. 
Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm glad you brought up that point that there's a lot of victim blaming in that era during the Clinton administration, during the Clinton scandal. And um, I think the White House under siege does these kinds of things to try to just find a way out. And um, it ended up obviously, you know, you know, creating an entirely, you know, troublesome life for her, at least in that near term. So that kind of revisionist, I think, um, history is needed because the administration did not handle it well. I'm not sure the president ever did apologize to her specifically, but certainly he apologized to the nation for the scandal. But your point is really well taken. And that is that it's interesting to see how different presidents handle this differently. So for Nixon, he really kind of reserved and, you know, kind of retreated to the Oval Office, but Clinton decided to take the show on the road. I mean, it's a difference in their personalities to be sure, but Clinton tried to play small ball instead of trying to, you know, go for one kind of big swing and get a home run on a policy. He would just try to pick off certain small policies that would, you know, targeted wise make people's lives a little bit better. So it's an interesting sort of, you know, difference in terms of how the two went about things and maybe reflects the politics of it since, you know, Nixon had a kind of bigger runway to be able to work earlier. And, you know, I think Clinton recognized that, you know, you're going to have fewer opportunities to govern after you've been tainted with this scandal. So he ended up just trying to kind of get singles and doubles, small policies like, you know, paying for cell phones for, you know, local community organizations, things like that, that, you know, weren't necessarily, you know, changed, wouldn't necessarily change the trajectory of American policy, but mattered to some groups. So it's uh, definitely an indication that, you know, presidents are um, mobilized around different issues. And generally speaking, presidents do try to kind of maneuver around the, the scandals. So in principle, presidents do try to, instead of talking about foreign policy, they tend to talk more about domestic policy. They tend to focus on issues that are pocketbook issues. So education um, and financial issues um, are all the things that come up in the State of the Union after a president's hit with scandal. So look at the uh, President Clinton's State of the Union speech uh, from 1998. Basically, it is a recipe for economic expansion and how to make people's lives better. So he's pivoting from the scandal to something that he knows people will like. Mm-hmm. For sure. And this is going to be my last question for, for you, um, Victoria. I'm not sure if you had one more. Perfect. Um, so my last question for you is, do you have, and favorite might be the wrong word to use, but do you have a favorite scandal or one that, you know, fascinates you the most that you've done in your research and been like, oh my gosh, the impacts of this or, you know, what happened in this is just crazy. And I'm, oh my gosh, is there one that really sticks out to you? Wow. That's really good. Um, <laughs> I think the one that's the most impactful is probably the Iran-Contra scandal. It had the most far-reaching impact in terms of explaining how President Reagan was interacting with the rest of the world and with Congress. Um, That became obviously messy in all kinds of interesting ways, but um, it also illustrates how the White House treats a scandal that involves the president different from one that involves other staff that's not the president, and they treated the reaction to that scandal differently, depending on which part of it they were talking about. So that had pretty profound implications. The one that fascinates me as a person, maybe not as a scholar, is the scandal that involved um, um, Burt Lance, who was a um, banker from Georgia. He was a really good friend of Jimmy Carter, and Carter kept his friends for a long time. They were a tight group. But when it came to going to D.C. and the um, administration unfolded, there was a minor scandal involving 
Bert Lance's bank back in Georgia. He was the uh, he was a staff member in the Carter White House, and Carter had to fire him. So basically, what they did is they did a comprehensive report to determine you know whether or not there was any kind of wrongdoing in the White House or not. They found that there was not, but the very next day. Carter fires him anyway. This took a tremendous amount, I think, of just fortitude to say, even though you're a good friend and you did nothing wrong, you still have to go. <laughs> he wanted to run a clean administration and it was, um, you know, it meant that he cost him a friendship basically. And so to me, that was really interesting to see how far scandals really kind of dig into a person's psyche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was not familiar with that one at all. Yeah, so I wasn't either. Interesting. Um, my last question for you is: Do you do you see that parties tend to abandon um, politicians after a scandal, or do they kind of just seem to let them be, like ha- like they handle handle it on their own? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it depends on the type of scandal. I mean, some scandals are easier to uncover than others. So with work um, with a colleague of mine, we look to see kind of what the president's best option is. Do you stonewall or do you come clean? And so one of the things we find is that if the scandal is very damaging and likely to come out publicly, presidents will try to stonewall um, because t- the damage would be, you know, almost uh, worse if you, um, it, you know, the damage would be worse if it came out and you admitted it. So parties are in the same kind of position where uh, they'll determine whether or not they think that that there's um, any kind of wrongdoing and then kind of adjust accordingly. That though governs, I think, what happened in the kind of, I won't say pre-Trump era, because I'm not sure that's the right cut point, but certainly it was the case that until Clinton, you had parties who would kind of adjust based upon what was said. Once the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal broke, most of the party backed Bill Clinton. And so from then on, you started to see real lines developed on scandals that affected the president. So even if it was a scandal that was obviously provable and where the president clearly did something wrong, you still see parties and the president's partisans back the president. That wasn't always the case before. Now, during Watergate, which is sort of the most you know, modern scandal, you did see some Republicans who instantly said that this was wrong and you know, President Nixon's got to go. But many of them still hung with him. In fact, I've got a memo from the internal, you know, Clinton or internal Nixon team that suggested that up until literally two days before he resigned, that there were still some Republicans who were just, you know, gung-ho <laughs> uh, Nixon team. So it depends a little bit on the era you're talking about, but to me, it's interesting to see that th- these kinds of connections are, 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 are hardening over time. And partisanship has created this moment where you don't see parties reacting to kind of protect themselves and the brand. They're really fused to the president. And so that means they typically will back the president and, and, and not um, challenge what the president has said on a particular issue. So that's, um, I think, a new thing, which is potentially damaging for parties because if you back a president that has done something wrong and people think that it's a problem, then it's going to hurt your party's brand. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Well, again, I think that was all the questions that we had for you today. We thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us and give us some expertise about this topic. I know I was really excited to have this conversation. I just think this is so fascinating and, and you know, 
borderline just interesting. I love it. So <laughs> thank you so much for, for bringing your expertise and your background and your research um, expertise to us. We really appreciate it. And thank you guys for watching another episode of What the Politics. Of course, you can always find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your podcast. And of course, if you want to check out our new video component, you can find that at WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Hello, everyone. So I am popping back on this episode of What the Politics with Emily because this is my last episode. Um, I believe it's episode 54. I don't know. It's been a year of episodes. First, I want to thank Emily for being with me on this journey with all the podcasts that we've done. Um, I have one question for you and I'm putting you on the spot. Oh, no. What was your favorite podcast episode? Oh, Honest, okay, I have to say I've had we've had so many good conversations, but I think the one that still stands out to me the most today because I just remember sitting in that podcast, the whole conversation and being like, what the heck? Like it was just blowing my mind was the the uh, CIA experiments back in the 60s with LSD and all of that. That topic just blew my mind it blew me out of the water i was just i mean i still think about like oh my gosh that is just so fascinating and to think that so many people have no idea that it even happened at all is just insane to me i just i loved mm -hmm. it i i know exactly which episode you're talking about it's the one with it's about sydney gottlieb yes and his experiments that he would do on people um i don't believe they were what's the word consensual experience on yeah. the part of the patients um so that was a pretty interesting episode i can't i don't know for for me i don't know what my favorite episode was but i mean the the three i have three that just kind of come to the top of my head the first one is the intern the dc intern yeah. because he was so sweet <laughs> and he and he was there for the january 6th insurrection mm -hmm. when it happened so it was fascinating to talk to him from a perspective that wasn't like years of experience you know the the yeah. the kind of he had more of an innocence to him and so for me that made his account of what happened more authentic yeah. um so i don't know if that if that made any sense but another one that comes to mind of course the alien episode where we yes. talked with a cia agent <laughs> that was pretty exciting um so that was that was something that we we were trying to figure out how to talk about so that it wasn't what was it so that it wasn't like a conspiracy theory it was more kind of like okay how can we go about this from uh from a, an objective point of view and i believe the was fbi he was an fbi agent yes he um was a very good guest to have on and he had pretty pretty good insight into yeah. into um intelligence reports and maybe what ufos and what i don't know what the other term is for aliens and unidentified flying objects and aerial have another one aerial uaps think, unidentified yeah. aerial something like there is a yeah. second one and you're right i'm blanking on it right now it, too. It, yeah and it's something and it's something very specific so that ufos won't get kind of like yeah because the ufos were being overused and so now they're using something else um that was a good episode and then the episode that we did with um the 
Bethany McLean, who was one of the major, major investigative journalists when it came to Enron, the Enron scandal, and a lot of the um, 2008 financial scandals mm-hmm. that were happening. So that was just exciting talking to her because I think she's just fascinating, yeah. you know. Um, so yes to everyone who is watching this or listening to this. Thank you so much for tuning in to What the Politics. I'm going to miss North Carolina. I'm going to miss everything about North Carolina, the people, the the places, the beach, the, the amazing weather, the amazing people who have been nothing but super, super kind to me. And um, I'm just really sad to be leaving, but I, I am very grateful for the experience that I've had here. And thank you to Emily too, for being an amazing co-host. Well, I love you. I, I know I'm going to miss you so much. And I've enjoyed doing this podcast with you more than anything. We tell everybody all the time. We always say it. Our podcast was like our baby and we just loved nurturing it and watching it grow over this past year with you guys and and hearing the feedback from you guys and what you wanted to hear and, and what guests you wanted to see. And, and, and we just really appreciate the support that you guys have really given us. And starting something new. I mean, this was the first time me and Victoria had ever tried doing a podcast or anything sort of similar to this. So um, we just really thank you guys for for supporting us and doing it. And thank you, Victoria, for supporting me in doing this um, and, and really being my confidant and my, my friend in this. And I really appreciate it. Yes. And of course, you can always stay um, updated with what's happening next at WNCT.com with all of the podcasts, all of the features, all of the specials. And I hope everyone, I really, really hope everyone a wonderful rest of the day. My last time signing out. All right, everyone have a wonderful Tuesday.